Hello, Herstorians. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and welcome to another episode of Women of Herstory, a podcast dedicated to celebrating women who have made or are making their mark on our society. Joining me today, as usual, is your favorite snappy dresser, Dapper to the Nines. What rating does my attire receive today? Oh, you definitely get a 10. Oh, thank you. Yes, yes. 10 for um, casual appearance and stunning glow of said casual appearance. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) Of course, Dapper. (laughs) For today's history lesson, we are going to be talking about the first woman to graduate from Notre Dame Law School, among many other things, Graciela, or Grace, Gil Oliveres. Before we get into this episode completely, this woman has a bit of controversy surrounding her. She was um, a pro-life supporter, and while our views do not align with hers, her contributions to the, um, quote, Chicana movement and the lives of of numerous people cannot be ignored. So I just kind of wanted to get that out there, you know, that we're not going to be talking um, about that aspect of her activism and viewpoints, just so that, you know, we all know where we are. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Quote, I see it as a movement for right. Not so much for liberation and not so much for what feminism or what the feminist movement means. I see it as an acquisition of rights that have been denied to women all along. The mere fact that the Constitution in many instances refers only to men, that all men are created equal, is an indication that at that time nobody was thinking of us chattels. Graciela Grace Gil Oliveras was born on May 9th, 1928 in a small copper mining town in Barcelona, Arizona that no longer exists. She was born to parents Damien Gil Valero and Eloisa Solis Valero. Her father was a Spanish immigrant who worked in the mines and her mother a Mexican-American woman who gave piano lessons to help support the family. She was one of five children, three sisters named Teresa, Anita, and Paula, and one lone brother named Danny. Oh my goodness. I'm sure (laughs) the house was was always... He was (laughs) outnumbered. Yeah. You relate Uh, to that. Same, yeah. I'm sure the house was always busy, though, with all those kids running around. Mm -hmm. The family lived in company housing built for the mine workers. The neighborhoods were segregated by race and ethnicity. That sucks. Barcelona for the Spaniards, Sonora for the Mexicans, and Ray for the Whites. Barcelona, Arizona was a mining expansion and development near Superior by Kennecott Copper Corporation, Ray Mines Division. The company kept groups separate at work and at home to discourage alliances among them to stop the workers from forming labor unions. Wow. It wasn't even, like, about race. They were like, what's the best way we can keep our bottom line good and our workers feeling like they're replaceable and have no rights? that's, That's despicable. Yeah. Quote, There, the public pools were closed to blacks and Mexicans, and both groups had to sit in the movie theater balconies. Copper miners in Arizona in the 1930s showed little promise. 
During the Great Depression, families in copper towns had to stay and weather the storm or leave their community for work elsewhere. Initially, the family stayed put, with Damien traveling to Phoenix for work. When World War II hit, there was a new demand for laborers in Phoenix. Damien knew he could find consistent work, so the whole family joined him. I can only imagine that benefiting... um... No one but the owners. Yeah, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it benefits only the people at the top. In 1944, at the age of 15, Grace had to leave school in order to work to help support the family. She attended Lamson's Business School in Phoenix, and she initially found work as a stenographer and a translator for a real estate agent. Opportunity knocked at KIFN, a Spanish-language radio station. She wore many hats there, hosting her own radio program called Action Line, becoming Phoenix's first female disc jockey. She became the woman's program director of KIFN in 1952 and held that position for the next 14 years. Sounds like she was really good. She at kept her, her job, options to open, too, you know. Over time, she was exposed to the poverty experienced among her listeners. The destitute Mexican and Mexican-American families in the migrant labor camps surrounding the West Phoenix and inner-city South Phoenix. She called attention on air to the plight of the fam- to the plight that the families were facing, and was subsequently criticized by the station owners who feared losing their more conservative sponsors. That's what I was thinking <laughs> in my head. I was thinking, I'm sure there would be some sort of repercussion for speaking the, uh, this truth. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. They told her that the role she was to play was a disc jockey, not that of a social worker or a politician. They basically said, shut up and play Latin jazz and give housekeeping and cooking tips to the women folk. Well, that is not going to fly. I know. I know. That can't happen. She's like, yeah, okay. What am I going to do? Lay there? No. As much as they wanted her to stop, she She continued to share the plight of her audience ensuring that they were seen and heard. She supported numerous charities like youth programs, cancer education, and programs dedicated to socially and economically disadvantaged groups. She volunteered to aid poor, physically and mentally disabled members of the community. She mentored high-risk teens, recorded education lessons in Spanish for the blind, worked with Maricopa Council for... Retarded Children, Yikes Terms, that's the name of the organization, guys, sorry, and directed Spanish plays at the Phoenix Little Theater to promote Mexican Spanish heritage, organizing entertainment for patients at the State Mental Hospital, Veterans Hospital, and State Tuberculosis Sanitarium, as well (laughs) as cancer prevention work with Mexican-American families. Awful name aside, it sounds like she was really um, in her community trying to help out the masses. Oh my gosh. Which is important. She felt her Um, calling there. But again, awful name. Probably could have picked something better. Yeah, that wasn't hers. She didn't name it that. But that's just, you know, the times, I guess. Yep. Mm. In 1960, the American Cancer Society awarded her Outstanding Leadership Award. She was also awarded a national award for her cancer prevention work among Mexican-American women. All of her work truly paid off in 1962, when philanthropist Robert B. Choate of the prominent Choate family of Massachusetts... Of course. 
he initiated the Careers for Youth program in Phoenix, and he reached out to her to come and work for him. She was to counsel Mexican and Mexican-American families in South Phoenix, as well as to, you know, help find ways to lower the juvenile delinquency and dropout rates in the area, which is really interesting because she knows firsthand why that happens. Right. Because she's like, well, I had to leave when I was 15 because... I had to bring money home. Right. We needed money. She's a good she's a good spokesperson for those kind of um social issues that need that should be addressed. Absolutely. Need to be addressed. Grace was obviously making a difference because Governor Samuel P. Goddard appointed her to the position of state director of the Office of Economic Opportunity or the OEO in Arizona in nineteen sixty five. She has come a long way from being a DJ. Yeah. In the best way. This department was responsible for overseeing federally funded social welfare programs. Quote, I don't want to be the same as the guys. I happen to like guys. Some of my best friends are men. So I don't want to be the same, but I do want to be equal. In 1966, President Lyndon B. Johnson appointed her as a member of the National Advisory Council of Economic Opportunity. Wow a council created by the U.S. Congress and directed by Sergeant Shriver. If you'll remember, I mentioned she was the first woman to graduate from Notre Dame Law School, but here we are. She's a member of a National Advisory Council and hasn't completed high school. Her path to Notre Dame is one that is unconventional. At the OEO, she met the president of Notre Dame University, Reverend Theodore M. Hesburgh. Impressed with the work she's been able to do and the type of woman she was, he encouraged her to apply to law school despite her lack of a high school diploma. They met when he was serving on President Johnson's Civil Rights Commission, and the two became great friends. So here she was, in her late 30s, a single parent, I didn't talk about that, but it's not really that important, and entering Notre Dame Law School. And in 1970, she became the school's first female graduate, and even more specifically, the first Mexican-American woman, or as she called herself, a Chicana. It's, uh, her path is so unique in that she had all these, um, she held all these positions and then went to law school. Yeah. Um, it shows that not everyone's path is the same, and we yeah. can't expect, you know, life experience speaks so much yeah. to what you can contribute, you yeah. know? School it, doesn't it, have to be for everyone, and that's okay. And it doesn't have to be the end-all, be-all to tell you what you deserve. Absolutely. Yeah. Before we get into everything Grace did after graduation, I want to talk a little bit about the Chicano movement. Please. I want to also note that I am using the terms that were specifically coming up in my research. I understand that... Um, Terms change, they evolve, but this is specifically what it was called and what it's being referred to. So I just want to make sure that everyone knows that's where my verbiage is coming from. Thank you for your disclaimer. Yes. So this was actually initially known as the Mexican-American movement. In an interview, Grace was asked if she thought there was a difference between the two. She answered yes and no that it depended on the region as well as the generation. The goal was the same, though, to bring the people up, to give them options, if they wanted to be middle class or to stay the same, to, but 
basically to just be in a place of absolute choice. Grace was vocal and was oddly accused of not being a typical Mexican by her fellow Mexicans. This was because she had a good job, lived in the Heights, and was perceived as successful. And she was heartbroken at the idea that the typical Mexican fails. Wait, did you say she lived in the Heights? Not in New York. There's okay. different heights. No, I know. But oh, you said the Heights, and I was like, that's, yeah, I initially thought Washington Heights, because that yeah. is where I live. No, in, this is so. Phoenix. Yeah. No, that's, Arizona. okay, yeah, yeah. no. But that's ridiculous that they criticized her. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. Yeah, she was accused of being a capitalist or being absorbed by the system. Quote, I understood that the movement was to give all Chicanos their constitutional rights, to bring them to a level where they could make a choice, to bring them to a level where they could, if they wanted, go on to school, get an education, and become whatever they wanted to become. Arguments were then made that this would strip you of your culture, to which she replied, quote, hogwash. Hogwash. Yes. <laughs> she, she, she argued that the more you move up, the more secure you become, and you're able to practice your culture without having to apologize anymore. Her way to keep the culture alive was to do her two-hour radio show in Spanish for free every Saturday. Well, that's a good way to she wanted promote to, the culture. Yeah, she wanted to keep it alive through music, poetry, information about Language. Chicanism, and yeah. yeah, Mexican heritage and everything, really. I have a quote that's a lengthy one, but it's a good one. So bear with me for a moment. Please. Quote, I really think that the Chicana has to find herself before she can contribute anything substantive to the movement until she discovers who she is and becomes secure in her own identity. I think we need to give her time to do that. I don't think we can accuse the Chicana of not contributing to the movement because she is going through her own personal identity problem. The Chicana has been hit not only with the Chicano movement, but with the women's movement. She has been hit with two very serious questions, and she's got to settle those within herself before she can contribute to the Chicano movement. I think that the Chicanas are doing a much better job of finding who they are and being very secure in it once they find out. I don't think the guys have ever taken the time to find out just who they are as individuals and then as members of an ethnic group. The guys have always had things come very easily to them. We've had to struggle for every little scrap. As a result of that, some of the guys can't really define the movement. They've just been swept in the current. And I think that's a really interesting perspective to think about how, like, these women were hit with, you know, the Chicano movement and the women's movement and having to define who they are, not just as women, but within their own ethnic group. You know, I think that's really an interesting thought. It's tough to have to identify your own identity and to relate to other people when you have numerous things going on at the same time. It almost makes it harder because what does it mean to you? Mm -hmm. What does your identity mean to you? What does it mean to your community? How do you represent uh, your, what is your idea of representing your culture through your identity? Mm -hmm. There's so many conflicting ideologies that it, it's almost impossible even now to, for someone to be able to specifically define one movement and mm -hmm. what it means to them, because what it means to them could mean something completely different to someone else in another region right. because of their upbringing. Right. So it's There's a tough a middle ground mm -hmm. to accept. After graduation... 
Grace returned to Phoenix and became a consultant for the National Urban Coalition. Grace later became the director of Food for All. She managed and administered a half-million-dollar OEO-funded program. The program's primary goal was to improve federal food programs. This meant school lunches, food stamps, and surplus food distribution in Arizona. She was really, um, she really wore so many hats. Mm. I think she was, you know, really thinking about where can I best fit and do my best work in this moment. Yeah, she seems capable for someone who uh, has put herself, involved herself in so many sectors you know, at an early age, being a disc jockey to being a part of LBJ's um, work. Oh, I think it, the common of... through line is helping the poor. Right. Yeah, yeah. And underserved. And a funny thing, <laughs> she shared that with her first paycheck from her $22,000 a year salary, she put it for a down payment on her dream car. And you guessed it, it was a three-quarter ton Ford pickup truck. That's what I was thinking, specifically <laughs> that model, that brand, that funny. company. So funny. So funny. When you reach a certain point, it's almost like you have to, you should think about what you want in life, <laughs> what you want out of life. and Treat yourself. You know, you... Get the thing you deserve. Yeah, like when you work that hard, it pays, you know, it, it's, you should at some point be selfish and get something for yourself yeah. to, you know... Give yourself flowers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Grace made a move to New Mexico in 1972, where she then became the director of the Institute for Social Research and Development at the University of New Mexico. Here, she pushed for men and women to be equally represented on the Raza's board of directors because we make up half of the world's freaking population. Oh my gosh. She yeah, had to I've like advocate for it. Mm -hmm. uh. I've heard that once or twice. <laughs> she and Vilma Martinez, another Latina civil rights pioneer, um, were the first woman to have served on the board of directors of the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund. This was the premier Hispanic civil rights organization. Once again, I'm using terms that were in my research as the definitions of these organizations and other things. She's a trailblazer, though, mm -hmm. at least in terms of um, the positions she's held. Mm -hmm. Where, of course, she then later became the chair. <laughs> uh, so that's fun. She became a chair? The <laughs> yes. look you gave me is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> like you thought I meant she was actually... I didn't think you actually meant it. I'm just... <laughs> I'm I'm looking down on your on your dad joke just now. <laughs> then from 1973 to 1975, Grace spent her time teaching at the University of New Mexico Law School in Albuquerque. Because of her strong Catholic upbringing, she made it known she was staunchly against abortion. Because of this, the 1975 National Women's Political Caucus rescinded their offer for a speaking invitation. Yep. Well, yeah. That same year, in 1975, New Mexico Governor Jerry Apodoca appointed Grace to the state's planning office. This made her the highest-ranking female governmental official in the state. As the secretary of the New Mexico State Planning Office, she was responsible for reviewing long-range and short-range planning for all of New Mexico state agencies. So basically, she did everything? 
Is that wow. what that means? <laughs> she uh, she was in charge of quite a few operations, it sounds like. Long range and short range. You're like, wait, so Everything all of it. Everything in between, yeah. So... <laughs> Grace was asked to fill this particular position on January 16th and was told that the job wouldn't be able to pay what she was currently earning. If she didn't want the position, he asked her to recommend three other women who she believed would be able to handle it well, which, like, good that he was looking for women. Um, she initially recommended one woman, went home and thought about the offer for about three days, and ultimately decided that the job was just too exciting to pass up. Did she write, it would have been funny if, like, the women she would have recommended would be herself. That would have been really funny. On a sheet of paper, she wrote <laughs> her name and was like, yeah, this is the other person good for it. And then it's just <laughs> two letters, M-E. <laughs> she ended up taking the $8,000 pay cut and took the longer commute for the job. Oh. The same year, in April, Red Book Magazine named her one of 44 women who could save America. And they must have been clairvoyant, as they stated she would make an ideal Secretary of Health, Education, and, Wel and Welfare. Because, boop, in 1977, President Jimmy Carter appointed her Director of the Community Services Administration. Oh, so she she had... She worked in two presidential... Administration yeah. during... Yeah, that's... That's uh, that that's that's crazy volumes in terms of her work. Ethic. Absolutely, and how um in the uh, in in the public eye, I guess you could say she was how how often she was truly contributing. Like it wasn't just four campaigns to be a point. You know, it was yeah. it was constant. This administration was an anti-poverty agency. She was clearly passionate and invested in the administration. She was unanimously confirmed by the Senate. This position made her the highest-ranking Hispanic and third-highest-ranking woman in the Carter administration. Grace held the position until 1980 when she resigned. During her tenure, she earned the title Washington's Top Advocate for the Poor. And someone even reported, quote, once again, Oliveira finds herself involved in the world of the poor, but this time as a viceroy of the government's social engineering. Viceroy. I know, isn't that a good word? <laughs> um, she, you know, it, it, it's, it's important that her ability wasn't overlooked. You know, her ability to succeed in the field that she worked in wasn't overlooked and that, you know, the positions that she held should be noteworthy, uh -huh. you know, um, despite her unfortunate belief, <laughs> beliefs in certain areas. Right. Hint, hint. Sure. Yeah. Quote, I keep hoping that the special attention I'm getting, I'm getting because I'm a human being and not because I'm a woman. So when they say, now that you're liberated, do you still want me to open the door for you and light your cigarette and pick up the tab at the restaurant? I answer, the only door I want opened is the door of opportunity, and I think I can do that myself. Boom. Mic drop. Love it. That doesn't even... I've, I also like the accent you gave the guy oh, who's yeah, he talking, sucks. apparently. Um, that uppity man. But she's definitely right. It, you know, regardless of gender, it should just be the door of opportunity. Yeah. After her resignation in 1980, Grace returned to her beloved New Mexico. 
Making her way back to her roots in production, she started the Oliveras Television Company. This, at the time, was the only Spanish-speaking television network in the entire nation. I like that she went back to media. Right? After her work in politics. She was like, mmm, this is where my heart belongs. These stories this way. Yeah, and it's good that she's also someone who is at the forefront of these stories being able to be told, too. Absolutely. She continued working in broadcast and philanthropy until she lost her battle with cancer at the age of 59 on September 19th, 1987. Well, cancer sucks. I know. Why does everybody die of cancer? I hate it. Ugh. An obituary in the Washington Post, published on October 1st, 1987, left a lot to be desired. Ooh. It was seven sentences long. Oh. One sentence was her marriage to Alfred Oliveras ended in divorce. Well, I'm frowning already. And, quote, a native of Phoenix, she was active in the civil rights movement in Arizona, and through this she met Reverend Theodore Hesburgh, president of the University of Notre Dame. Although she had not completed high school, much less attended college, Father Hesburgh arranged for her to attend law school at Notre Dame. And I can't help but think whoever wrote that was mad salty and being rude. And there was, like, nothing about her serving under these presidential camp, like, um... Administration. Yeah. There was nothing about all of her incredible philanthropy. No, it sounds like, uh... It was just, like, she got divorced. Yeah. And then then there was another thing about uh, she was survived by her um, child. All this stuff. And I was, like, seven sentences long... She's not even the hero of her own obituary. Yeah. yeah. She's hardly even in it. Right. Yeah. And if she is, it's because other people have helped her along the way. They, like, that just was so unnecessary and horrible. And I want to know who wrote it and write them a letter. They're probably dead now. It was a bitter Betty who did not get in a Notre Dame, clearly. (laughs) Well, Notre Dame Law School actually started a scholarship in her name, and I pulled this from the website. Quote, the Notre Dame Hispanic Law Student Association, HLSA, annually recognizes the outstanding Hispanic lawyer or judge that best exemplifies the principles and ideals of the pioneer for whom this award is named, including commitment to community service, demonstration of the highest ethical and moral standards, and dedication to justice. I love that. Well, that's nice that yeah. they gave her some flowers. Yeah. They that they did more on that website than her obituary. Honestly, and and that's one womp, womp. that's one sentence that yeah, literally yeah. C- encompasses, you know, a, a good a amount hy- of her. Yeah. Like who she was. Yeah, Grace was given an honorary doctorate of human letters from Amherst College and an honorary degree of law from Michigan State University. All of this begs the question, would Grace have been admitted to Notre Dame Law School today? Answer, no. Not in a million years. The admission process and higher education in general has become a whole new money-making scheme that pushes students to decide immediately out of school if, one, they have enough money, and if they don't, the answer is to go into incredible amounts of debts that will drown you for your whole life, and two... Determine exactly what you want to do for the rest of your life, and you are not allowed to pivot or change your mind because that means your hundreds of thousands of dollars were a waste. And three, passionate students don't matter. GPA and where you came from matters. 
It doesn't matter that you have a passion for this thing and your circumstances didn't allow you to get the grades you maybe should have. It, it doesn't allow for someone like Grace to do what she had done because it's, I don't understand where we went wrong as a society when higher learning became something other than becoming more informed on the thing you want to be more informed on and it became required and it's it's, it's behind a paywall you have to it's basically like a pyramid scheme it is where you have to invest x amount of money and then once you like prep schools right amount then you actually come up but that's after like how you know however many years it takes for you to graduate yeah and then uh, however many years it takes you to pay off your bills. Then yeah. it's like, congratulations. It's crazy. It's crazy because it also, yeah, like people moving around to certain neighborhoods, certain cities, certain places to make sure that their kid gets put in this school district. And then, oh, well, I have enough money to put my kid in this prep school. And then everybody from this prep school all gets to go to Harvard. And you're like, but what about these people who have better uh, a different perspective different life more life experience better portfolio can maybe say look i i might not have been able to put all my time and energy into making sure that i made 110 on every single exam right but look at this i've already got great connections in the work field and i have a great worth work ethic already like give me a chance let me show that this counts and uh, flames oh i'm sweaty about it on the side of my face (laughs) i'm gonna leave you guys with this quote we don't want to trade places with the men and we don't want to do away with the men but we do want some options we want the ability to share the responsibilities of our family we want the ability to earn our own money we want the ability to make our own choices that's so sad that that has to be said still and i feel like we say a variation of this every episode every episode (laughs) for every season we've done Uh, the underlying theme has been about how the platform is so janky and one-sided um and that women and yeah you know really just want the scale to be balanced so that life is actually fair yeah it's not about, I mean, and of course, there's going to be, you know, some extreme feminists, but who do want all the men to be gone away with, which, you know. Fair. Whatever. That's fine. Whatever. Um, there are men who want all the women to be done away with anyway right, as exactly. well. You know, so there's that's just extremists fine. on either end. <laughs> yeah. But it's like. They're the outliers. Yeah. The majority of people just like, just. Ooh, let me get in the door. You know, the thing about it is life sucks already, no matter how you identify. So why make it harder for one group of people? Because, you know, if you don't like if life is hard on everybody um, and you and the scale is tipped on one side, (laughs) uh, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Um, (laughs) You know, it's just going to make it that much more difficult for them to overcome their obstacles and then you end up getting upset because you're like oh you complain about you know 
this uh, well i had to go through right this. and it's like well you know what we both struggled Ugh. that's the theme we both struggle life is hard it shouldn't be harder for the one next group of people. people yeah exactly oh it's it's this oh okay this just the the whole idea that i suffered so you should suffer too the whole idea behind the people who or or then people saying well to make myself suffer less i can make these people suffer in mm -hmm. a different way mm -hmm. and it makes me think of the people who are against canceling student debt who were like well i had to pay mine off yeah you did and it sucked didn't it it took you 40 years and here you are just now able to put a down payment on a home just now able to start saving for retirement when you're 10 years away from it why would you want that for your grandchildren? Yeah. Why would you want that? Why are you saying, yeah. because I had to go through this, you should too. It's like the people who are like, well, we didn't have um, these fan uh, elect uh, 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 calculators in our pockets um, growing up. So, you know, you shouldn't be able to use them for this. It's like, what? I like that. What? I like that um, sometimes people will ask me for, like, really, like, big bottles of, like, Carlo Rossi wine, like, some, like, n just, like, Terrible whatever. Wine, sure. And it's, like, big, like, heavy bottles to have to pick up, and they're just, and I, I'll, like, you know, I'll grunt a little bit if I pick it up, and they're, like, oh, don't worry about it, you're young, and in my head, I'm thinking, why do you want my back to go out? <laughs> I'm not even 30. If this, if I do it the wrong way, you know, or if I can't pick the bottle up, then you have to do it yourself. And, yeah. you know, like, why would you want the buck to be, why would you want that it's buck to be passed buck, yeah. on? That yeah, sucks. People, it's, it's that whole idea of, of the, if, or when people are like, well, if, if you say you're tired and then people are like, well, you, you, you don't work what I did or I used to have to do this and this. And I'm like, well, day. that is really awful. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Yeah, who I, hurt That you? is awful. And yeah. why are you Why are you now justifying my experience Suffering. of it? Yeah. It's so bizarre. And, oh, man. We digress. <laughs> Thank you, historians, for tuning in again and again. Subscribe, follow, tell your neighbor's best friend. Come back this Friday for an interview with Linda Kuo, Ooh. the co-founder of Dancers Unlimited. It's a bi-coastal sort of. So it's actually bi-coastal sort of. It's based in Honolulu and New York City. So it's beyond bi-coastal because it's like island and coastal. In this interview, she shares with us how she connects dancers of all backgrounds, why it's important to have the tough discussions about identity, and so much more. Sounds like an important discussion to be had. Yeah. I will tune in. It actually kind of uh, goes along well with this episode. Follow us on the social medias. Instagram. At Women of Her Story Podcast. Twitter. The Her Story Pod. TikTok. At Women of Her Story. Facebook. Women of Her Story. And you can always visit our website at... Ofherstory.com backslash cancel daylight savings? <laughs> Until Friday, be safe, stay healthy, and show the world what you're made of. Ooh, I'm a haunted leaf falling from a tree dying. Residual spooks. Ooh. Bye.
Thank you.